Father God, we thank you for worship. Worship is an important time where we actually pause in what for many of us is a busy week, but we pause and we reflect on who you are, what you've done for us, truths that are vitally important that kind of inform our whole world life view. And so, God, would you speak to us now as we study, as we open your word? Uh, Would you draw us into deeper places of faith and trust? This we always pray, Lord, to you at this time, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen? Well, we're in a series. It's called Beginnings, and it's a study of the first five books of the Old Testament. These books are referred to as the Pentateuch, meaning the five scrolls, the first five books. We've already looked at Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. We saw that the message of Genesis 1 and 2 challenged the worldview of people living long, long ago, 3,500 years or so ago, just as it challenges the worldview of people living today, especially as that relates to, you know, who is God or, you know, who are human beings? Why are we here? What is our purpose? The, uh, the book of Genesis challenges popular worldviews. We saw that the reason human beings were put here is actually to be in community with God. We were meant to honor and to glorify and to love and to serve him as kings and priests in paradise, in Eden. That was the purpose of God's creation. But of course, that didn't last terribly long because in chapters three through five, we saw last week, Adam and Eve sin, they rebel, they choose not to listen to God. The results of their decision not to trust and not to believe and not to obey led to the corruption of their nature and all of nature itself. This is something theologians refer to when it comes to our nature as depravity, total depravity. It's a sinful brokenness that affects all parts of us, not just our behavior, but also our thoughts, also our feelings. That's why it's called total depravity. And the worst part of depravity we saw was we cannot fix ourselves, try as we might. And the consequences of this are horrific. Alienation from ourselves, alienation from each other, Alienation from God, alienation at work, alienation with creation, loss of identity, loss of purpose, all of these things. And we saw this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, where it says, And they heard the sound, this is referring to Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's a picture of paradise lost. That's a picture of community lost. God is walking through the garden and he calls out to Adam, where are you? Where are Adam and Eve? Well, they are hiding. Sin has destroyed their desire for community with God. And uh, to our amazement, God pursues them. In fact, in the midst of declaring to them what the effects of their sin will be, things like pain and childbirth, desire to dominate and rule over each other, futility of their efforts at work, death itself, in spite of those consequences of their sin, God also makes a promise. 
It's called the Proto-Evangelion. God says to the serpent in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that rather cryptic statement, promise, right there, is the first prophetic mention of the coming of a deliverer, a savior, a messiah. And of course, that day came. Uh, The day finally came when the woman's offspring was named Jesus. And this proto-evangelion, this early promise of a deliverer, comes as God's response to Adam and Eve's sin. And to that, we simply kind of go wow and say, that is amazing grace. Amazing grace. Now today, we look at the continuing struggle of the human uh, race in this sinful, fallen, broken world. In Genesis chapter 6, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. You can follow along on the screen. But we read Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, that now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. There's a word that keeps occurring there. Did you notice it? It's the word corrupt. Corrupt, shahat. It occurs three times. And it means to destroy or to ruin or to mar. Sahat. And we saw earlier with Cain that Adam and Eve's sin kind of evolves from their rebellion in the garden, their children Cain, for example, in them, the sin goes even deeper. Now, generations later, it goes wider. It's all flesh. It's the whole earth. Verse 12 says, and God saw. That's the first time we've heard that phrase since back at Genesis 1, where it said, and God saw that it was good. But now the text says, and God saw how corrupt the earth was. Things have greatly degenerated. The mass of humanity is not calling on the name of the Lord. Back in Genesis chapter 4, we saw that humanity had begun to divide into two separate groups. This is very significant. This is very important. There are actually still two groups of people in humanity, the sea of humanity today. But it began to divide back then. One group was Seth's descendants, which we are told in Genesis chapter 4 verse 26... Seth's descendants called upon the name of the Lord, but another group, the descendants of Cain, went away from the presence of the Lord. And they settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so the community that God intended to build originally at creation with Adam and Eve and their descendants, that community is not happening. Uh, In fact, most of the earth's population by this time in Genesis 6 have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted the earth. And this idea of community with God was little more than a distant memory at best. Things have become very dark is the point. And so Genesis chapter 6 verse 1, we read this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. What the serpent had hoped to accomplish in the garden 
namely to undermine God's authority in this new community, to break the trust between human beings and their maker. These things have largely been accomplished. That's how sad this moment in human history is. Almost no one is calling upon the name of the Lord, according to Genesis 4, verse 6. In fact, Moses describes the situation this way. He says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the level and the intensity of utterly disregarding and flagrantly disobeying God has become almost universal at this point. And the examples given are both uh, notoriously difficult and kind of perplexing. I almost wanted to skip this section, uh, but I thought if I did, I'd get emails. So here we go. We're going to dive in. Uh, This is Genesis again, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So we have these two groups. The sons of God and the daughters of men. And the question, of course, is who are they? (laughs) Who is this describing? It's a good question. There's a lot of debate around this because it's not clear exactly who they are. What is clear is that some sort of uh, sexual transgression has been committed here. And uh, intimate relationships have been formed that are not proper. Relationships that displease God. And they illustrate the fact that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. But exactly who the sons of God are and who the daughters of men are, well, over the centuries, there have been all kinds of postulated theories to identify these two groups. Some have argued, for example, that the sons of God are fallen angels. Uh, The phrase sons of God does occasionally refer to angels in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 29.1 is an example. Job 1.6 is an example. And so the argument, if if you take that position, the argument kind of runs like this, uh, that these fallen angels left their proper habitation to have sex with the daughters of men. The daughters of men being just that, daughters of men. Of men and their progeny created the giants or the Nephilim that are referred to in, in uh, here in chapter six verse four, and all of this was an attempt, understand, at corrupting the seed of man, so that the Messiah could not be born to this uh, to the descendants of Adam and Eve, because the descendants of Adam and Eve, their uh, whole line has been corrupted. Now there are people like John Calvin. Some of you've heard of him a reformer. Uh, John Calvin was quick to declare that that whole interpretation, and this is his word, not mine, as being absurd. Uh, He didn't buy that theory. Uh, Calvin argues that the sons of God are simply a reference to the descendants of Seth. Uh, In other words, Seth's descendants are the ones who call upon the name of the Lord, Genesis 4, 26, and therefore the sons of God are members of the family of God. These are followers of God, people trusting in God, depending on God. The daughters of men, on the other hand, uh, he would say, are the women of Cain's descendants, people without faith, people not following God. These are the daughters who went away from the presence of the Lord and did not honor him, did not acknowledge who God was 
uh, did not seek to glorify him, certainly not obey him. So you have followers of God marrying individuals who are not followers of God. And Calvin also points out that the Nephilim mentioned in chapter 6, verse 4, are not said to have had children with the daughters of men. It only says that they were present at that time. And so Calvin concludes that that idea that fallen angels were having sexual relationships with with human beings, women, uh, is absurd. And Calvin sees the Nephilim as men of infamy, Men of perhaps nobility, men who had taken power and control to themselves, uh, men of great stature, great size, great strength, and great tyranny. In fact, he writes this. He says that uh, these are men who, quote, practice great violence and tyranny. I do not, however, suppose that he, Moses, speaks of all men of this age, but of certain individuals who, being stronger than the rest and relying on their own might, and power exalted themselves unlawfully and without measure. This is the way Calvin and other reformers have understood this passage. Now, frankly, these debates actually still go on today. You can Google it, then you'll find people going back and forth trying to identify these two groups, sons of God, daughters of men. And these uh, arguments actually began long before Calvin. So trying to identify the sons of God, the daughters of men, the Nephilim, and so with any certainty, let me just say, is not yet possible. We don't have sufficient information to be definitive about this. So in cases like this, whatever opinion you hold, you should hold it with charity. And you should also hold it kind of loosely. Uh, but don't build you know, significant doctrines around a text that's legitimately confusing and difficult to interpret because the likelihood that you are wrong is pretty great. So, you know, be careful with interpretations. Don't build important doctrines around them out of texts like this. Personally, uh, I go with Calvin on this. Uh, I think the sons of God mentioned here are likely Seth's descendants, the daughters of men or descendants of Cain who have no regard for God. In either case, however, Here's what's going on. What's being described is the slow watering down of faith in or devotion to God. The point is that more and more of the earth's population is living apart from God, not calling out to God. This is the ultimate perversion of why human beings were made in the first place, namely for community with God. Everything is going in the opposite direction that God intended it to go. You see, we were made so that our families, our work, our friendships, even our activities of rest and recreation, all these things would and should give him glory and build community, deepen community with him and of course with each other. But here in Genesis 6, the scene is not that. We read in verse 6 and 7, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. So here's the picture. God, to prevent the complete corruption of mankind, decides to do the unthinkable. He decides to undo creation. He's going to undo creation, but not without paying 
a great price, I might add. In fact, it's interesting. The English Standard Version translates this little section that it, it grieved him to his heart to do this. Uh, the NIV says that his heart was filled with pain, describing God. The New Living Translation says it broke his heart. Understand, this is a unique perspective on God. We're, we're learning something about God here that is absolutely unique to the Bible. The gods were not, in, in the ancient cultures of the ancient world, uh, in any way, shape, or form, someone or something that would grieve over something happening to man. But the God of the Bible grieves has a broken heart, in fact, that our community with him has been disturbed and destroyed to this degree. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the creation account, you remember, begins by saying that God shaped the formless mass. That's the language. Tohu vabohu is the Hebrew word. But, but he did that by moving back the waters that completely surrounded the world. That's the way the creation story begins and, and unfolds. Here, now, the waters are going to again cover the earth as before. It's an undoing of creation. And regardless whether you think the flood was universal, some of us do, maybe some of us don't. Regardless whether you think it was universal or whether you think it was local, I'm not going to get into that debate this morning. But uh, other than to say that the writer of Genesis certainly did understand that the, the flood was so pervasive. He even tells us in chapter 7, uh, verse 19, that it covered the highest mountain. So the writer of Genesis perceived this flood to be probably universal, uh, these judgment waters of God. But whatever you might think about that, you know, and Christians differ, one thing is certain, one of the saddest statements in all the Bible is found right here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. And that's where it says, God says, I am sorry that I have made them. Understand, God is not sorry because it, it took so much time or so much effort or so much energy or, boy, what, that, that was just so difficult and now what did it accomplish? That's not why he was sorry. He's sorry because the beautiful creatures that he had made in his image for the purpose of community have become so broken and so dysfunctional and so abusive, and so hurtful, and so oppressive, and so evil, and so violent, they want nothing to do with him anymore. The community that they made doesn't look anything like what that community was supposed to look like. It is, in fact, ugly. And all of that breaks the heart of God. And that piece of information right there is frankly, amazing. It's amazing. It's important for us to grasp this so that we understand the God we follow and the God we worship and so that we understand what motivates him to do the things that are going to follow in the weeks to come. What motivates him to enter into a covenant with mankind for the purpose of redeeming and restoring them? Well, this is what motivates that right here. God's heart is broken the direction things are taking. I think it's very much uh, like the pain of a parent who watches their son or daughter. This is a flawed illustration, but it helps us, I think, understand a little bit when a parent watches their son or daughter make one bad decision after another, one harmful 
thing after another that they engage in or pursue, another bad financial decision, another bad relationship, another hurtful, harmful addiction, another bad spiritual decision which moves them further and further away from community with God. When a parent watches that kind of thing, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's infinitely more so for God whose love and desire for his image bearers is for them to flourish and to live abundantly. Jesus, you know, the verse said one time, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's God's desire for his family, his children, but that's not what's happening here in this story as it unfolds. Quite the opposite, in fact. And so God brings judgment But just before he does that, there is this one bit of really, really, really good news. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Noah walked with God. There's that picture of walking again. Remember, God came into the garden, and he's walking in the cool of the evening, and he's looking for Adam. That's all about community. That's what that signifies. Well, Noah walked with God. The interesting thing is, apparently, only one man was. Noah And God says, the only way that my plan for this community, a loving community, can be kept alive is to start over again. And so God sends the flood. Most of you know this story, or at least parts of it. God gives Noah some instructions to build a boat. Noah starts building. It's it's not a little boat. It's a really, really big, big boat. He builds it for 120 years. Multiple decks inside to take care of all the various livestock and animals that are going to come his way. In chapter 6, verse 22, it says that Noah did all that God had commanded him. And that's something really, really good, something for which we should be thankful, something we haven't seen much of so far in these early chapters of the Bible. Someone actually listening to God and someone obeying God. It's a phrase that's repeated four times in this unfolding story about the flood. And it will be interesting to see what happens when someone does obey God. God fills the ark with animals of every kind, animals to repopulate the earth, even some animals for sacrifice. Someone calculated, I have no idea how they came up with this number, uh, that there were between forty-five to 60,000 animals. I don't know how, how they got that, but point being, it's a lot of animals, <laughs> a lot of animals in this, uh, in this ark. And the ark uh, is made ready, and we read in Genesis 7, verse 16, and this is significant, the Lord shut him in, that is Noah, his family, and all these animals. The Lord shut him in. It's significant because what that signifies is the ark, remember, is God's idea. The ark is God's command. The ark is God's provision. It's God's protection. It's God's salvation from the judgment he's about to bring upon the whole face of the earth. And this is what happens, you see, when someone obeys God. Salvation happens. Life happens. Deliverance happens. Now, next, the rain begins to fall, chapter 7, 40 days and 40 nights. We also read that the the fountains of the deep open up. So apparently you've got water coming from above and water coming from below all at the same time. Eventually the ark begins to float and the earth is covered with water for five months. Now, actually, Noah and his family and these animals are in the ark for just over a year. 
And we are told in Genesis 7 the following, verse 21, And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Sobering. Sobering if you're thinking as you read. The judgment of God on sin and sinners is always sobering. God hates sin and all that it does. We should never minimize the seriousness of our own sin. When we do that, we're just being fools. Proverbs chapter 10 says, The wise of heart will receive commandments but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The wise of heart listens to God, receives the teaching of God, the truth about God, the truth that he gives us about ourselves, and embraces that. A babbling fool will come to ruin. A little later in Proverbs 10, it says, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Not taking sin, any sin, let alone their own sin, seriously. And the point is, do not minimize the seriousness of your sin. When you do, it will lead to your destruction. Every encounter, every observation of the process of sin, whether in an individual's life or the life of an entire society or culture, points us in that direction. It leads to destruction. It leads to violence. It leads to community that's very ugly. And even the opposite of what God intended originally. Now, the writer of Genesis uses a device here that's meant to grab our attention. Uh, It's meant to be kind of shockingly refreshing, actually. Uh, We read that the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days in chapter 7, verse 24. And we're supposed to feel that. That's a long time. Uh, The point is, no one, nothing is living. Nobody's treading water for 150 days. All life on earth is dead and has been for some time now. And the next words that we read are, but God remembered Noah. That's meant to grab our attention. The contrast of judgment taking place on every living, breathing animal and human being on the face of the earth, they've perished. But over here, God remembered Noah. And not just Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. That's amazing grace. Again, amazing grace. We read that God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. So the earth finally dries up. The flood is finally over. And God now gives Noah yet another command. He says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And so the ark is emptied. 
We're nearing the end of this story. And it's, it's significant that the first thing Noah does is worship God once he, once he leaves uh, the ark. He reaches up in worship. Noah, we are told, built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Almost certainly what Noah is doing here is he's offering an atonement for his sin and the sins of his family. At the same time, he's offering praise, he's offering thanksgiving, he's giving his worship to God. The community now is off on a good foot. There's relationship with God. Now, what does God do? God responds with promises. God says, I will never again curse the ground. God says, I will never again strike down every living creature. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God is actually remaking the creation. And because of that, some of the language here is kind of eerily familiar to us from the original creation back in Genesis 1. He blesses Noah and his family. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he talks about man being made in his image again. But some things now are significantly different if you read carefully. For example, God not only gives Noah plants for food. Now animals are a part of the food chain as well for a human being, for man. Um, Now, therefore, the relationship that Noah has with the animals is quite different. Uh, Look at verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2. God says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered, but they will fear you and they will run. And uh, we, of course, observe that dynamic right up to the present. Now, too, something else, because of the destruction and the chaos and the violence of sin on uh, earth or in the world, God introduces, in fact, a new institution. It's just mentioned in seminal form, but it's upon this statement that governments have been built in human society, and uh, it's that of government. It's the purpose of government, social justice. And they will exercise the sword to exercise justice. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So sinful depravity in the world now has resulted in some things significantly changing since the original creation. And to reestablish God's relationship with man, God enters into a covenant A covenant is talked about. It's a treaty. Uh, Dr. David Van Drunen, he's a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, calls this the common covenant. It's a good name. It's the common covenant as opposed to the covenant of grace, which we'll actually start to talk about next week, or the covenant of redemption. This is the covenant that God makes with all of mankind, regardless whether they believe in him or acknowledge him or worship him. doesn't matter. This is a covenant God has made with all human beings. And uh, it's the sign of the covenant is, of course, the rainbow, particularly appropriate. 
because judgment came from the rain and the water, now rain and water will remind us of the promise of God not to bring that kind of judgment ever again. Next week, we'll talk more about this idea of covenant. As I said, in particular, the covenant of grace becomes very, very important for all the rest of our understanding of Scripture. But in this common covenant, you have government, a new institution. The promise of social justice will come through that institution. And this is, again, a covenant made with all people, believers, unbelievers, followers, uh, people who do not, do not follow God alike. Now, at this particular point in the story, given the magnitude of God's judgment, the magnitude of this flood, the fact that all flesh has perished, and we've started over with a family that's worshiping God, we think, well, you know, maybe now with this do-over, things are going to be so much better. And the very next event after the flood is, you know, Noah plants a vineyard, so some time has elapsed, not sure just how much. But he makes use of that vineyard to make some alcohol, and he gets drunk. It's the first mention of alcohol abuse in the Bible after the flood. And then Noah's son Ham is mentioned and commits a serious act of disrespect to his father, which when we read it, uh, it leaves us kind of scratching our head. Well, how serious was this? Well, understand, in the ancient world, this is a really big indiscretion. In our world, we kind of get used to the disrespect that happens from a younger generation towards uh, parents, towards the older. But in the ancient world, that was a real serious issue uh, to show disrespect for a parent. And Noah, the parent, responds by cursing his son Ham and his descendants. Can you say dysfunctional family? It's all right there. And sadly, things actually go from bad to worse. In chapter 11, we read the story of a city and a tower, the Tower of Babel or Babel. It's kind of a satire, really, on the folly of human arrogance and human pride. Genesis 11:4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's the same old story. Uh, let's build something that reaches to the heavens, the place where God lives. We'll occupy that place. That's what's being said. That's what be, is being intimidated here. We'll be like God, you see. We'll make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered all over the earth. And just an aside here, we'll pick up on this more next week. But when God reaches out to a, an individual called Abram and calls him out of a land called Ur, God essentially tells Abram, I will make your name great. I will give you a name. It's not something Abram or Abraham will make for himself. But here you see the objective is to make a name for ourselves. This is an assault. This, this whole idea of this city and of this tower is an assault on heaven and an assault against God. That's what's going on. And what was God's command to Noah, you remember, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they say they don't want to be scattered all over the earth. There's power, there's strength in numbers, and we can presume, I think rightly so, that at this particular point, what you have here is a totalitarian government being led by a few or one, and the power concentrated in that manner, as we observe even ourselves all the way down to this day, is 
pretty destructive. And God is not going to let this happen. Genesis eleven five 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the writer's being kind of clever here. Where does God have to go to see this tower? He comes down. <laughs> way, way down, right? <laughs> it's almost like uh, God sits in the heavens and uh, he sees that the human beings are building a tower, and it's a tower that they believe is going up. Uh, the language is with its top in the heavens, right? But God, as he sits on his throne, has to look way down. You know, let's look at that, that tiny little thing that's being constructed down there. I guess I'll have to go down to get a closer look. It's picture a magnifying glass almost. The writer's highlighting the folly of human arrogance. They think they are actually touching heaven itself when in fact God has to go way down to even see this thing. And God says, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. God is saying the human capacity for evil and for violence has to be restrained. If it's allowed to go unchecked, they will destroy themselves and they will destroy everything with them. And the community that they will build will be ugly. It'll be violent. It will not be the community God wants. And so, do you, do you think this is the last time that human beings use technology in a destructive way? No, but it's a glimpse of what we've always done and what we'll always do until Jesus returns. And so God makes a change. And again, it's, a, it's kind of a severe mercy. Uh, the flood itself was a severe mercy. It was God's way of, of stopping the corruption of the entire human race. And, and here again is a severe mercy. It's slightly funny. Uh, it's, a, it's a language change. Up to this point, everybody speaks the same language. And then in a single instant, I presume, one guy says to another, pass the hammer. And the guy right next to him says, no habla inglés, right? And, and now the very outcome that they feared is what they experienced. They are scattered because they can't communicate. To have community, you've got to communicate. And they can't. And this is really, frankly, all for their or our own good. What we see in both of these stories is the continuing downward spiral of the human race. And it's repeated over and over and over. We're going to see it again in, in Scripture. And yet in each of these stories, God intervenes. Yes, with judgment. He intervenes with judgment. And he does that to check the effects of sin and to punish sin. But he also intervenes over and over and over with grace. He pursues human beings for the purpose of community. He's making a people for himself. Now, what I want us to see this morning is just this, a couple of things. First of all, I want us to see that the downward spiral of human beings into sin it doesn't flummox God. It doesn't surprise him. It doesn't confuse him. God has a plan. God is not defeated in any of this. In fact, nothing can stop his plan, his kingdom, the making of his community. Not my sin, not your sin, not all our sins combined. 
Not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, not China, not Russia, not the United States. You see, God is going to make a people for himself, always has been and still is. And people are going to, as we see this story unfold, move from a family to a nation to a kingdom with the promise that the king is going to return. That's where the whole story is moving. And it's a great story because it's the making of a community by God for himself, a community that knows him and loves him and honors him and obeys him. And it's a beautiful community with a beautiful end, a community that's full of love and appreciation for God. Nothing will stop that marching forward. That's the first thing to underline and to remember. A second thing is just this. For that to happen, ultimately, sin has to be defeated. The sin out there and the sin in here has to be defeated. Because sin is what then and is today the single true root of all destructive forces on this planet. Your sin and my sin, whether we understand it or appreciate it or not, it is the sin in us that destroys us. It destroys our community with each other. It destroys any possibility of community with God. And so you see the great need of all humanity has always been and still is someone to deal with this this broken sin problem in us. And of course, we come back to this basically every Sunday when we gather to remember who the solution is, who solves this problem. Well, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. But once again, at great price, right? It seems that judgment, the judgment of God always costs God a great price. And in this case, it's the ultimate price. It's the sacrificing of his son. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He's the sin offering. That's the language that the apostle John uses to describe the death of Jesus. It's what alone is sufficient to pay for our sin. And that's where all of redemptive history moved to the crucifixion, the life, the teaching, the death of Jesus Christ, and then his resurrection. And today we, of course, look back to that event and forward to his return. This morning, I guess my challenge is just this. Let's not get tired of the message of grace because we see it over and over and over. We even see the grace of God on the heels of the judgment of God. Just like we do at the cross. Jesus hangs on the cross. He dies on the cross. It looks like everything has been destroyed. Everything is over. But in fact, that's where life comes from. That's where forgiveness of sin comes from. So let's be amazed. Absolutely amazed by grace. Grace that we receive. The fact that God wants community with us and will suffer any price, even the death of his son, to secure and to create and to make possible that community. Amen.
<laughs> Pray with me. Father, this is, a, this is a story that your people of all time has rehearsed over and over and over and over again. This is a story of amazing grace. God, may we not be apathetic about it. May our personal and deep awareness of our own brokenness and need of saving drive us to the place of deep gratitude for the salvation that you've provided, the salvation that we have in Jesus. And Father, as we begin to see the, the next steps that you take in this redemptive story uh, with Abram, may our appreciation and understanding just grow for the amazing grace that is ours in your son. We say thank you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.